0: Hello, and welcome to the season finale of Inspiring Psychologists, Breaking the Mold of Private Practice. I'm your host, Wendy Kendall, a psychologist and private practice coach dedicated to helping you break out of the box and build a thriving, innovative private practice. We've reached episode 12, and today's episode is both inspiring and timely. We've titled it Moving Beyond Extractive Models Building a Psychology Practice with Social and Environmental Impact. In this episode, we explore how our practices can lead the transition from an extractive economy centered on unsustainable growth towards a well being economy which focuses on prosperity for all within planetary boundaries. Joining me for this important conversation are two pioneering guests, Dr. Tara Quinchirillo, founder of the Conversations Starter Project, and Dr. Rachel Yates, founder of Climate Parenting. They'll share their steps towards a well-being economy and discuss the power of psychology in driving climate action through community engagement. Throughout our discussion, we touch on key themes, such as the ripple effects of small actions, social tipping points, and the important role of psychology. Our guests delve into how they engage directly with local communities, create sustainable, long-lasting solutions, and inspire others through their work. We're not just mental health practitioners. We are heart-driven leaders. We have the potential and the responsibility to guide society through a just transition. But to do so, we must be willing to break the mold of old business models. So if you're ready to reshape not only your practice, but also the world, then this is the episode for you. Before we dive in, don't forget to join the conversation in our Inspiring Psychology Practices Facebook group, and visit inspiringpsych.com. That's inspiringpsych.com for more resources and insights from our guests. Without further ado, let's dive into this impactful season finale. Hello, and welcome to the Inspiring Psychologist podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Kendall, a psychologist and a private practice coach, and this is episode 12, Moving Beyond Extractive Models, Building a Psychology Practice with Social and Environmental Impact. So we find ourselves at a unique juncture in time. The IPCC released its synthesis report for the sixth assessment report earlier this year, and it underscored the imperative need for a swift and just transition to an economy that is centered around well being and not only or merely gross domestic product. And so for me, you know, hearing some of the press around this and following this very uh, closely. This raised a really essential question for me, which was how can our private practices serve as a vanguard for that change? You know, if we're really talking about massive transformation, if we're talking about moving towards a well-being economy, then for me... Our role as psychologists and therapists and our role in, in in terms of leaders of of private practices has an enormous um you know role to play in this so i figure that uh the world of private practice is is right at this juncture too um we've seen demand for mental health care rocketing there's a shortage of providers and that's persisting so it's clear that Trad- traditional models of private practice need a drastic reinvention. Investors have been pouring money into scalable platforms, but many of them have, have essentially monetized that distress, both in direct per- uh, payments for services, but also in harvesting data to sell Um, about its clients and at the most benign use to advertisers. So to me, that's, that's a system based on extraction. So I'm thinking about, you know, how do we change, how do we be the change that we want to see in the world? You know, I want to think about how we change models of private practice that foster isolation and burnout among providers. And that's both toxic and it's also unsustainable. So we have a responsibility, I think, to challenge the status quo in private practice and to reimagine what private practice can be. It's not simply providing templated solutions for working within that broken system. But for me, I think it's about shaping a more regenerative way of working. So we're delving into this crucial topic today. And that's why I've invited Dr. Car- uh, Tara Quinn Chirillo, a charter counselling psychologist and founder of the Conversation Starter Project, aimed at enhancing mental health well-being in the community, and Dr. Rachel Yates, a clinical psychologist and founder of Climate Parenting. So welcome to you both. Hi there. Good morning. Hi, Wendy. Hello to Hello. Thank you. Hi. So um, thanks so much for being here. Uh, I know that both of you are very busy practitioners. And so I was delighted to connect with both of you, I think also through LinkedIn. And Tara, I've seen you around a bit because obviously you have the Adversity uh, Psychologist podcast. Rachel, I just got to find out about you and I like leapt on you and DM'd you through LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn to like say can you come and be on this podcast and and you were really gracious and and kind of uh, and accepted you know after a discussion about what it's all about um, and and kind of agreed to come on. So could I ask you both for a bit of an introduction please Tara would you be happy to go first?
1: Oh absolutely so I'm Dr Tara Quincherillo I've been a psychologist for over 20 years. I do run my own private practice, but um, off the back of the pandemic in 2021, I set up a community project, which has now just become a community interest company, so a not-for-profit, just trying to tackle loneliness, isolation and emotional health issues after the pandemic, free to access for community people. I run walk and talk sessions, but we also do psychoeducation and helping the community to help each other, really. Um, So a really nice way to get my NHS roots, a philanthropic me that wants everybody to be able to access things, to also meet psychology and bringing those principles to the community and helping them understand how they can empower themselves to manage their emotional well-being.
0: Yeah and I'm going to come back to because I'm really intrigued in the story of how a private practice also somehow led to or or maybe it didn't lead to that you know what was the kind of origin story of of that I'm just going to come over to you Rachel first of all uh, could you give a bit of an introduction into yourself as well and and also into climate parenting
2: sure hi um I'm also a clinical psychologist um I qualified as a, in London um as a clinical psychologist but I'm now based in Barcelona Um, And since qualifying, I mostly worked in children's services in the NHS, uh, mostly in the field of autism um, and become kind of increasingly concerned about the climate emergency, particularly since my own little girl was born a couple of years ago. Um, And so kind of made a shift to thinking I want to work in some form relating to that. And also the move here meant that I was kind of thinking about new directions anyway. Um, And I've taken some training in climate change coaching. And I've of trying to combine um, my background in working with parents, my own experiences as a parent and um, climate and climate change coaching to support parents who are concerned about climate change and the destruction of the natural world more generally in terms of the biodiversity crisis as well. Um, And it's something that a topic that stirs up um, strong emotions in people I think once you really begin to look at it and so and I think parenting brings additional layers to that in terms of um, sort of thinking about what our responsibility is to our children in terms of their own emotional well-being but also um, how we kind of engage with thinking about pr- supporting societal change for their future um, and a lot of people are increasingly worried about this even though it's a topic that we don't talk about as much as yeah as you'd think that would reflect that level of concern um, and so I kind of yeah thought about lots of different ideas, but came around to this idea, and I'm now offering an online uh coaching program for parents and I'm just piloting the first um group at the moment um and it's an idea of kind of bringing people together to um share kind of form community around those concerns, have a place to open up conversations that are often sort of not had and um, think about how we can support our own emotional well-being but also our children's um, in the context of of what's happening in the world so I'm really happy that we're having this discussion because I think often these topics we stick we're thinking what um, politicians can do what climate scientists can do but I think in some ways they've solved the problem already and what's left is kind of economic and political but it's definitely behavioral as well And, and so I think as psychologists we we have an important part to play that maybe we don't think about um that
0: as often as we we could yeah and something that i think is really important there that i learned from following and listening to uh, i think i went to an event uh, an event that was being run by the uh climate is it climate coaching alliance um i'm getting the name right um and the main thing that i took from it was we need to talk about this. <laughs> we need to start opening our mouths because a lot of people are really concerned about this. I see it as, you know, the, the two sides of the same coin, which is, you know, the problem that we've been dealing with is rampant extraction and, and exploitation for many decades. And part and parcel of that is the environmental destruction that goes with it. And the rampant inequality that goes with it, which speaks to what you're addressing here and a lot, a lot of what we work with as psychologists and what we really care about. So, for me, addressing, you know, thinking about moving beyond extractive models, moving beyond an extractive world, focusing on well being, um, like we're right there addressing it and have been for a long time time. So Tara, I wanted to come back to you and, and kind of work through a little bit this origin story of, you know, being in private practice, developing a brand that's around the adversity psychologist, which to my ear starts to speak to this topic a little bit as well. And then that, as you said, you know, experiencing what was going on through the pandemic and developing um, this now moving into a CIC. So can you share some of that story with us, please?
1: I think like most people when that first lockdown happened I was trying to move my what was face-to-face clinic online overnight having a panic don't know how to use zoom what even is zoom Um, and I also felt a little bit helpless and I'm sure a lot of psychologists thought well we've got skills things that we could use so I basically set up a small little Facebook down in Sussex group to try and help people with the kind of emotional fallout Um, and I ran that for about a year or so during 2020 and then i thought actually when we were allowed to start to meet face-to-face outside i thought i can do more so basically i wanted to reach more people not everyone can pay privately to see a psychologist i need to get paid have bills to pay. So, I wanted two things to meet together. So, the philanthropic element is me setting up what were just originally walk and talk sessions in my local park for adults where people come and connect safely. A lot of people haven't seen anyone in months. I had people who hadn't left their home in several months, a lot of people who'd lost people, all sorts, you know, the whole emotional health, people with pre existing mental health needs who didn't have access to much during the pandemic. So, I just started walk and talk sessions. Um, I stood in the park with a book in case no one turned up the very first day because i thought i'm gonna look like an idiot so all of my vulnerabilities are out there and now they're even more out there um and it's just more so i took on a business partner um And now we have this really fantastic model where what I want to do, and it sounds incredibly cheesy, but it's not meant to be, is to empower people to manage their own well-being. So I use the psychologist part of me as a framework to manage risk and crisis and all of those things, lots of safeguarding protocols. Obviously, you can't just walk and talk around a park. Um, All sorts of people come from all sorts of walks of life. So I can bring those principles of psychology, but I help people. I don't actually do any intervention. The intervention is just the pathways I have behind it and the referral agencies that refer into us and people walk around the park and talk and they have to do that themselves so that's where it's different so it's bringing all those principles of research and theory safeguarding risk crisis management to help people safely do that and it's free and it's remained free so for the past three years and that's why I have to obviously run my private practice as well I've done everything in a philanthropic way nobody I have volunteers that work for me now everybody does it out of just the kindness and the goodness of their hearts really um, and that's what makes it special it's quite magic if I can say people give and the people that come the regulars that come you don't have to book you just turn up so we take away all those barriers no booking and having to cancel we don't start on time so all of those little things look accidental but they on purpose Um, and people give as much as they get and I couldn't have planned for that so lots of people who come now help me to facilitate and run them and help other people to feel safe and confident and we just talk and we talk about anything (laughs) there's no structure it's not a mental health group Um, it's actually just helping people with the kind of grassroots of emotional well-being which is what we need Um, plenty of mental health groups out there Um, it's just a free service and people like it and they come back and it just seems to work Mm.
0: and there's so so I started writing notes like furiously as you were talking there and there's so many things I want to pick up on there in last week's episode we were talking about relationships. And I don't know if anyone's heard or, or saw that or if they've listened to yes, it already. Yeah. But yeah, we were talking about um Vicky Yuana. Dr. Vicky Yuana was talking about therapeutic community. Yeah. And um we had a little bit of discussion on LinkedIn afterwards around that. And the thing that really struck me there was um how how we've got like a, a the, there is a healing potential be, built into humanity which is at the power of community Absolutely. right yeah and um and it, that's part of the life force that has you know brought us to you know 600,000 years of evolution or whatever it is you know i'm, I'm not an, i'm not an anthropologist so <laughs> um but I think for me, that is one of the things when I'm thinking about as a psychologist, how can we um, resource communities so that they can switch from languishing towards flourishing, utilising their own resources?
1: Absolutely.
0: And to me, that is about, that's really regenerative because that's about creating the conditions for life as opposed to, this mechanical mindset which is about oh we need to be in there controlling all the variables in order to create an outcome which is the way that we've done things a lot in mental health services right yes yeah so that really spoke to me and what I love is your focus on removing barriers to that thing happening
1: absolutely we've all been there i'll book something and then not be able to go or feel i don't want to and now i've got to cancel and then what does that do to the next time and for a lot of people that come on our walk and talk sessions particularly they have a history and mental health issues or you know they may have some neurological issues if we have people with additional needs um, and you don't want those barriers so you know we're always there it does mean that we often stand freezing cold in the rain and maybe one person comes maybe 20 people come but we remove those barriers we don't cancel our walks either they're really simple things actually that have just evolved you can't plan yeah. for those things when you're setting mm. up a project. Um, but actually, they're the elements that work best because it takes away, you know, and if you're that person and it's, I've got permission to share. I've had wonderful examples of people who followed us for months. I had one woman who sat in her car for several weeks before she got out and joined one of our walks. And that's the things mm. that I want to get out there, that if we had to start and it was a group where you sit down on chairs, she wouldn't have come in. And it got to yeah. 10.05 and we start at 10 o'clock. People come 10 past, quarter past the hour. They join us halfway around. They can leave at any time. And those are all the barriers, usually, when you think of traditional mental health groups or services. You know, you've got to be there for the whole time. You're in a room. And even though you can open a door and go, there's more psychological barriers there, whereas we meet in the open. So there's a lot of safeguarding that goes on. But once that's in place and we've done that work, it makes mm. it super easy. And that's how it should be. Um, and yeah. that's what facilitates people feeling safe, secure and coming back again as well.
0: Yeah. So the, the phrase that came up for me, um, which I jotted down, was creating conduits for kindness and contribution. <laughs> you Absolutely. know, it's opening channels as opposed to making things happen. I mean, I'm not yes. saying you're not making things happen, but it's like this opening it's, of channels. As it's opposed purely to like, we the, call it organic.
1: Things just right. kind of happen. And then exactly. my partner and I kind of look at each other and go, wow. That really works, Um, and then pretend we'd thought of that all along. But that's the magic of it. You have to be very vulnerable doing this. I'm sure you'll agree, Rachel, that when you're trying something a bit new and it's outside that model of what's just. Do and are we gonna be yeah. judged? And psychologists do like to judge each other sometimes. I will throw yeah. that out there. That, you know, is this robust enough? Is it scientific enough? Is it, you know, gonna be what I'm supposed yeah. to be doing? Um, but if you can kind of just lean into some of those tricky things, we can do some really great stuff in communities. Yeah. And and the idea is that if my partner Shirley and I stopped tomorrow the people would carry on doing this so you know if we're not yes. there one week or we're on holiday and some of our volunteers yeah. are running it still works and those people go away and tell other people and you know the idea with our model is that we want it then to be taken on board you know yeah it'll roll out because it's so easy it's, <laughs> it's, it's almost too simple
0: yes yeah absolutely <laughs> I love that um that, okay, that, that's made millions of light bulbs go off in my head, so I will try and rein <laughs> myself in at that point because it's always a risk with me. Rachel, I'm going to come over to you for kind of your origin story. Why was, I mean, it almost sounds like a daft question, really, when I'm asking a parent, why is climate parenting really important <laughs> to you? But tell, tell us more about the story, like the origin story of, of, of this Um, Yeah, sure. Um,
2: Yeah, I can relate the sense of what you're just discussing about community, because definitely um, personally for me, kind of finding a community within which to sort of think about these things has been really helpful for me. And I I hope that that's what also works and and seems to be the feedback in the sessions that we're running. Um, But in terms of yeah, my own journey, I've kind of always cared about environment. I remember learning about the climate crisis in school, so kind of over 20 years ago. But I. Always was somebody who kind of wanted to work with people, um, and it felt like my route to go down psychology route, um, and so then I think within the NHS it sort of takes up all your headspace and and kind of um, thinking room really on top of kind of life with family and friends and so on. So I never quite found my space to, to address my environmental concerns and I, but um, beyond kind of the old demonstration and maybe doing things in my personal life. But then my, my daughter was born. Um, in 2021 and it was around the same time as one of the more recent ipcc reports came out and i was reading things that were weren't entirely unfamiliar but they were kind of much more serious than than they'd felt before and suddenly they were really deeply personal um and i it kind of was this mental shift for me that um i have to somehow make this my work because otherwise i'm not going to find space for it um and i spent a lot of time thinking how can i Um, getting involved in addressing addressing this using the kind of skills that I've got and diving into exploring the topic as much as I could Um, and kind of realising that although the science is really scary there's a lot that needs to happen in a very short space of time and sort of having a child makes me think of that time in a very different way so suddenly it's this needs to happen before she will be finishing primary school um, if we're going to really address this And, um, and so it has to be now I can't wait for me to sort of um be sleeping through the night for example (laughs) we have to to try and get on board and do what we can um and but also it's something where the scientists have told us what needs to happen um and they've done that part of the the jigsaw so it's it's how we can help shift people into being able to think and talk about this stuff and and doing what needs to happen um and i read a really great book called the future we choose which is um talks about two different futures one is which where we carry on as normal and the other future where we really get on board with um making the changes that need to happen
0: and it i have, have that, one. You got that one yeah <laughs> i was just Good i'm one. like i am sure that's on my desk <laughs> but there's <laughs> millions but sorry go on <laughs> um, no it's it's so interesting
2: yes. because it, it really makes the picture of what it might be like in different scenarios very visceral and I think sometimes it's really difficult to imagine the negative scenarios of of what could happen understandably so but it's also hard to imagine the positive future we're trying to move towards and and it's so important to visualise that as well Yes. Um, and it made me realize that actually change is happening. Change is difficult, but we don't get to avoid that. We, it's going to be changing the way we live one way or the other. So we we might as well get involved in trying to make that change something positive. And, and I think connecting dots for me that there's so many issues that are so in- interconnected. And, um, you know, if we get it right and if we really make the changes that need to happen in terms of the environment, it's it, it's not only climate and nature that that solves itself in terms of kind of clean air and water and, um, and all these kind of things, it's also loads of other in- interconnected issues in terms of um, kind of education, equality, because it all has to be addressed together. Um, and so, yeah, I sort of um, played with lots of different ideas for a little while and bounced around, but came around to this feeling that um, I've worked with parents previously and it felt like the right the right space for me to get involved in and also I think there's a lot of emphasis on children and and what sort of young people are doing growing up and I've always worked with children but I really feel like it's not children that need to be solving this partly because there's not time and secondly because we don't want to sort of be putting that responsibility on their shoulders and so parent felt like parenting was the right place to sort of be thinking about this issue for me.
0: And i'm just thinking about the generational aspects there as well when it when we think about climate parenting like my my kids are now young adults and i still feel like i'm climate parenting in that sense and you know thinking about them approaching a time when they might be thinking about having children and therefore I'm becoming a climate grandparent in that sense. Mm-hmm. So do is what you're offering also incorporating those multi-generational elements or how might they be doing that?
2: It's so interesting. I'm Definitely I've kind of tried to advertise it so that it's open to grandparents as much as parents and carers and really anybody who cares about a child in their life. Yes, um, yes but um actually it's been all mums so far in the, the group that I've that I'm running but I'm re- I'm hopeful that that will extend out I think um I think like the climate space is tending a bit like psychology to be quite female but hopefully there's ways that we can broaden
0: that well we'll just start where we are and we'll grow it from there right <laughs> um i'm one of the things that i think both of you alluded to was that now, if we think about the scale of the problem, we can become really overwhelmed and we can end up feeling powerless um, to make a change. Like what difference does the th- the thing that I'm doing? I know that I've been there as well. And, you know, one of the quotes that I saw that it, that is like my, my beacon of eternal hope was, now I always get the name wrong, but I've mentioned it in the podcast before. It was this um, statement by a Nobel Prize winning chemist and he basically said at the point of maximum chaos in a system you have the maximum potential for islands of coherence to develop and to influence and tip the whole system so just just because it feels maximally chaotic doesn't mean it, there's actually a moment of real potential there for the smallest unit to start to influence the whole, and for me that was like uh the 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 life raft that I cling to, this idea that actually the at a grassroots level, doing what we need to do, creating our so called islands of coherence, we can be the ones to start to to really make a shift at a big systemic level. So that was my life raft if you like and it's the, still the thing that I cling to but for you what what helped you to see you know uh, Rachel you mentioned reading um, the future we choose that book and it's giving you the you know the the bad scenarios and it's giving you the hopeful scenarios um you know for both of you what was the thing that helped you to that helps you to hold on to the hope <laughs> I guess. Uh, Coming to you, Tara... Do you know what? I'm just thinking, actually, the original Facebook group that I set
1: up, obviously people can put comments on so you get a real sense of what people are going through. And although it was a very small thing in comparison with the, the whole of the UK, gave you that intimacy, that snapshot. And then with a project like mine, it's really tempted to get hooked up in how big it could be and where you could reach. And mm. um, my business partner is really great at keeping us really grounded and slow, but just going, this is what people locally need. This is what's missing for them at the moment this is what they're going to or guessing what they're going to need when we did start to you know reduce the amount of lockdowns and, and be able to kind of re-emerge again um, and going forward just every week every time we do all of our walks ourselves we still go to all of them um, is that you take that time to talk to people and hear what they're going through what they're anticipating and that's what guides me so it's less about kind of research and literature we keep ahead of that but for me it's the people You know, what are these people coming along? What do they want? Because it's very easy to get lost in what, you know, know, the wider society is saying we need in terms of mental health, tackling loneliness. We
0: need that, but it's the bottom-up bit as well, isn't it? It's the grassroots, as they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of focusing on fundamentals and responding to... I think one of the things that I've also learned and read about and observed and work with psychologists as they do this is that um intimate connection with local community and the responding to needs. Um the solutions are in there, basically. Yeah. Yeah. In
1: this month's Psychologists Magazine, they, the whole edition is uh, centred around the Brighton Conference, the European Psychology Conference, and the theme of that is around kind of bringing psychologists to communities. That. And there's yeah. some spectacular quotes. We're speaking through that at the weekend. Um, and just again, it's that it's it's getting out of your comfort zone. As a psychologist, we we'll all we all know, especially practitioners, psychologists. You know, what the psychology look like? Coming back to what I said before, am I doing yeah. okay? Is this is this proper work? You know, for the what of a scientific word. Um, and there were so many different academics at um, Brighton University talking about that's exactly what it should be. You know, that we need to kind of move away almost from this fear that to be a psychologist is only this one mold and that yeah. by doing something else is somehow not proper. Um, And I think thats I've learned a lot with that, That that, you know, the two things can coexist. We need the research, we need the theory, because that's what I'm drawing on to to be able to run my project. But also I need to be in the community, being vulnerable, hearing from people, trying things out. Some things don't work. Sometimes we need to make tweaks. Sometimes we get it wrong. Um, But that's part of it. And you've got to be quite vulnerable to do that.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Mm. Rachel.
1: No, I definitely relate to that in
2: terms of the feeling of... um, Needing to connect with others and needing, to, and I think in doing this, I feel like I've found a place where I can be more authentically myself in some ways because it's genuinely where I'm coming yes. from, when I'm kind of working with yeah. the people that I'm working with, and um, and so the bit of that tension then between when am I a psychologist and when am I part of this group, but um, but it's still a, I think it's those relationships that that really help to provide hope and and seeing how ripple effects can happen. So I also have a, a book group that I run, which is a completely free thing. Um, for discussing climate and nature books and documentaries. And and having read that Future We Choose book, I then put it on the list for the, the group and we read it. And somebody then read that and fed back that they'd um, kind of discussed it with a friend of theirs who'd read it, who now put it on the kind of required reading for a course that she runs. And the, the, that was something that just gave me a lot of hope, this sense of something very small that I do just really because I felt like I needed it. Um, and then there's ripple effects that you don't kind of even necessarily know. Feel. So I think we often think, oh, how can I, what's the big thing I can do? Because this. this topic is so big it needs such a big action and i somehow need to uh, have an idea that's big enough but actually there's no one person who's going to solve all the problems out there and and we just have to sort of think i think what are our what are our skill sets and passions and how do they marry up with what's needed and 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 do a little piece um and i think accepting that that's that's the role and as long as i'm doing my piece of it i sort of somehow trying to um, believe in in that other people will be doing the same and and that will hopefully lead us in the right direction and i think a sense that touches on what you said before wendy that's like this change change isn't necessarily linear so even though um yeah. kind of it feels excruciatingly slow um change in terms of um climate yeah. and nature it is something which um is building kind of energy i think and a bit like tipping points in negative tipping points in terms of Uh, catastrophe in this topic really i think social change can happen in that way too and and one thing can lead to another and suddenly something is much easier and i think we've seen that in terms of things like renewable energy um the prices are coming down so i mean that's economic but i think socially it can happen in a similar way um and and small things might seem like they don't make a big difference but they can in terms of the way people think about these things and then they open up people's minds to thinking about bigger changes that that could be possible
0: that's true and as we're thinking about that you know this topic of the small things that we can do there is so much negativity out there about the people who are doing the small things you know there's there's always those you know wherever they've come from those trolls on social media who are very happy to kind of i mean i think most of them are probably from troll farms you know and 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 all these kind of things these influencing campaigns that apparently you know people run these businesses um but you know that sense of oh you've you've been doing x well that just means you know that means nothing because but actually the small things are the things that are going to tip the system you know we sh- we really um uh, really can support the small things as you said tara it's it may be taking a walk around the park with people you might not have met before um you know it rachel it may be having conversations about books that you've read and suddenly they're they're on a they're on a curriculum somewhere and shaping and influencing ideas there as well and having those kind of seeding effects one of the things that i talk about um when I'm working with um, psychologists who are themselves kind of thinking about where they want to make their contribution, where they, you know, how they want to shift their private practices to this, I don't know, to this more um, explicit kind of regenerative focus is this experience that I have to share with you. And I call it, you know, it's highly scientific. It's called the Chumba, 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 Wooshka model, and you didn't anticipate I'd be telling you about this when you came on this podcast this morning. But this is the experience of exponential change, right? Because Rachel, you've seen, you know, slow, but an exponential change curve at the bottom, we saw it with the flipping pandemic, right? We would see these curves as, you know, the Financial Times was kind of plotting these curves and showing us, and we would see that little tick start to go up and then whoosh, care. So the idea that we should give up because it feels slow is like another one of those things I'd love us to kind of push back against because the experience can feel slow, but that, that can also be an exponential change curve in the making. So, yeah, I don't know if you've kind of come across some of those experiences as well as of where it feels slow and then suddenly it can shift or change.
1: I know I certainly have. So one of the things I think that was really important for me, and I'm thinking if there's somebody watching today who's new to independent practice, as a psychologist or, you know, further down the line, is that I had the stable base of my private practice. So that was kind of just by itself. I didn't have to worry so I could take more risks with my philanthropic time and, you know, being realistic. You can't just start a project if you need income. You know, we need income. We can't live off air. Um, So that, I was very fortunate because I'd already set up my practice. It'd been running... Quite a while, and then that allowed me then the vulnerability and the time to just go right. I can try this. I can do this, and, and just being really realistic with you know when we look at perfectionism and, and burnout, you know it's really easy, isn't it, to think I can do this, I can do that, and you can see all these fantastic people on Instagram doing great things. But it's got to be practical, hasn't yes. it, as well? So you know, allowing yourself time, can I do this? What can I afford? And that helped me keep really structured. I've only got this time to do this walk. That's why walks are on certain days at certain times because that's when I don't work. Um, um, and allowing that, but also I think having good support networks. So I have a really good support network with my project, um which is really crucial because it keeps you grounded. There's some days I'm very frontal over at times. Those people that know me, oh great, right, we should do this, right? Let's think about mm-hmm, this yeah. next. But right. slowing down again, that's great. But how's it going to fit in realistically? So you know, I think the support yes. system, the stable base of your private practice. You know, making sure you're not stressed because your income's dependent on what you're doing. These are all really probably boring things, but really necessary things to think about that you've got people to sound off ideas people to bring you down sometimes and say that's not going to work or not sure (laughs) um so I think that's really important
0: yeah yeah thank you for that Rachel any experiences around that exponential change
2: in terms of the practices I suppose um yeah a little bit in terms of just feeling like I sort of started dipping my toes in the water and doing what felt like it needed to happen in small ways and very similar actually in some ways to Tara, I've kind of had to do it alongside life and parents and, and, and my main job that I'm still doing remotely um, in order to kind of bring in the income. So it's at the moment yeah. because I'm, I'm much earlier in the phase and we trying to work out how to make this complete work in terms of a, a business model or, um, and, and how the funding might come through. Um, and so it's definitely been that kind of like jump jump in step outside my comfort zone and, and yes. try and do things um and and as a result I end up having so many amazing conversations and i think particularly in this area of um of, of climate and there's a lot of people who are really engaged with it and want to see things happening as fast as possible and as a result it's a really generous kind of community and so kind of dynamic and energizing and so i've found that just sort of started talking about things, having conversations here and there, and, and ideas then come from that and people make links and, and um, you suddenly find you're being invited to talk on a podcast. Or, I, I yes. Think it's, sort of, it's just starting, I think, is the, the thing. Yes. And I have found, I don't know quite what you're about meaning in terms of this exponential um, curve, but certainly um, it's, it's not a planned journey and it's not steps that necessarily I had in mind from the beginning, but I think gradually um, exactly. if you do what feels important, it, it can come together
0: yeah yeah I love that um so a, a couple of times you've alluded to the fact that this can sometimes feel ab- about like it's like we're going against the grain like we're we're taking risks um appropriate risks to um do things differently um and and sometimes we have to work against kind of perceived barriers or myths um have you come across that as well I know Tara you've you've alluded to that a few times so just wanted to kind of bring in your experiences around I mean we talk about here breaking the mold of private practice and you know I'm including your CIC in that overall idea of private practice but what else have you experienced in this element of needing to go against the grain somehow.
1: Shall I go first? Yes. Sorry, Tara, yes. Um, Apologies. I think for me it's I do a lot of act in my private clinic and I love that kind of of end-of-life question. Commitment acceptance and commitment therapy (laughs) for those people that may be new to that. Um, Which is a a value-based therapeutic intervention and one of the questions that I absolutely love is that end of life question so if you look back over your life what are you going to think about the decisions you make or didn't make um, and for me even though at times I still struggle with is this robust enough is it you know am I doing psychology right you know, what are the HCPC going to say about this? Is it proper psychology? Is uh, For me, looking back, I want to reach more people and I can't do that just in my traditional private practice. Not everyone can have access to private psychological um, treatment So I want to reach more people. Those are the roots. I used to work in the NHS for many, many years. And I miss that, you know, that people can have free access. That's my value. Um, And I want to reach more people and I want to empower them today. You know, that kind of cascade effect, as you say, and also that ripple effect. So my thing is, looking back over my life, that I know this is the right decision for me. I want to be able to look back and go, yeah, I'm I'm glad I did that. And I know that I will be, um, even though it involves a bit of vulnerability along the way. Um, And my absolute value is I can reach more people so that philanthropic part of me is what keeps me going at times when my inner critic goes no, 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 not sure whether you should be doing this
0: Yeah, and is it is it just inner critic it, or you know, has there any pushback come from outside as well Good question <laughs> I, like,
2: I, mean, I don't know um, I feel like yeah, have similar kind of challenges and things that I've come through and similarly a critic that's sort of asking those questions. And I think a lot of it is personal. Um, I don't think I've, first I've felt pushback um, externally about what I'm trying to do. I don't know if you
1: have, Tara. Yeah, no, I haven't, which is really interesting. It's, it, it's purely in a critic, but then sometimes what I might see is when I'm flicking through various publications or psychologist mm-hmm. magazine every month thinking, oh, maybe I should be doing that. <laughs> or you know and I think one of the things that's really important for me is obviously the, the research you know the psychology of science of mind and behavior so we're scientists practitioners aren't we at heart is that actually in a community project like mine it's very difficult to get data at the moment because I need ethical pathways to do that which would then actually stop people wanting yeah. to come along so at the moment I've got this whole chicken egg thing where at some point mm. I have qualitative data that people are happy to give me but I'm going to need some more robust data at some point but then that actually involves me having to change the model of what I do mm. and that's a crossroads so there is that external influence in order to get more funding grants to show people how this is working I need that data and as a psychologist I know how to get it but actually it's at odds at the moment with my model and the ethics of what I'm doing with the people coming along they don't want to be filling in questionnaires I don't want them to be seen to be pieces of data um, some of that again may be in a critic but actually a lot of it is fact I don't want them to feel that if they come along they're going to have to be asked certain questions um, because at the moment that is not part of our model so that I guess is kind of where perhaps the environmental or the external stuff <laughs> meets my inner critic as well.
0: Yeah. And um, I mean, the thing <laughs> my background is applied psychology. So did a lot of stats and research methods. And of course, a lot of our frameworks, our research frameworks, as you said, our funding models and so on are uh, more heavily biased towards the logico deductive type of science right yeah. have you collected all this data can you show you know effect size and all of these other other elements and my thesis was a grounded analytical thesis it was a living systems model this is like 1995 96 that i wrote this um and what what we were looking at there is Um, theory generation as opposed to theory testing now that in the grand scheme of things is as scientific as the logico-detuctive but the system itself being kind of set up in that way focuses more on the you know have you got the data have you got this and so we have an environment like like you said a system of regulation which is not unlike the issues that we've got in terms of our system of regulations anyway that is that is then hampering your ability to both continue and to get funding, and so that requires a change in the mechanism as well of how we support these kinds of projects, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, yeah, I think the we need to. Talk to and... these yeah. Sorry, Rachel, go on. No.
2: I think the kinds of numbers that we're looking at as well in terms of kind of, um, I, I certainly find within what I'm thinking about doing is there's maybe some outcome you might measure that would be uh, more traditional kinds of things, but there's also other outcomes in terms of those sort of ripple effects and things that are much harder to kind of get a handle on. Yes. Um, and it makes me think of within, I guess, communications around some of these topics and how we kind of um, try and persuade people on climate, particularly I'm thinking about, but all sorts of topics. In some ways, people are more or drawn to stuff than they are to data. And so I wonder whether, um, as well as thinking about the types of numbers we're trying to collect, maybe there's, there's maybe there's other ways that we can engage with um,
0: people who might be interested
2: in sort of funding or supporting these kinds of projects as, through stories as well as through, through
0: data. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, So finding those alternative sources of funding of people who are more in tune with the different kinds of data, especially more human forms of data like stories... Absolutely. yeah yeah yeah, exactly okay so anyone out there who feels like funding any of these projects who's very happy to kind of base that on the um the stories and the you know much more organic forms of data that we can gather which aren't destructive of the of the living system that that is being supported, because really tara that's what you're you're referring to you know if you come in with this intervention it's going to destroy the living thing that's been growing
1: yeah absolutely yeah. yeah and word of mouth is crucial with community projects as well we rely a lot on people yeah. sharing a lot of people come along because someone else has told them so if they're you know yeah. something is It probably doesn't sound much to someone who is you know awarding grants but you know for somebody to say oh actually but you do have to fill this questionnaire or I didn't like we also don't know what we're triggering off when we're asking people so that you know the ethical practitioner also has to step in and go is it all right to be asking this and these questions yes um so there's a lot to think about there
0: yeah, awesome. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about hopes for the future as well. Rachel, can you still hear me? Because I don't know if your feed is. Can, can you hear me yes, all right? Okay,
2: I'm frozen. Okay. Yeah, a little yeah. bit
0: frozen on the uh, video. Oh, no worries, um, but as long as you can hear and we can pick yeah. up your audio, we'll be all right. Yeah. Um, so, thinking about your hopes for the future. Uh, I'm going to come to you first, Rachel, because it feels like hope is a big part of the brand that you're developing, you know, the story that you're developing around climate parenting. What are your hopes for the future, for the development and growth of your project, but also just in terms of the impact and and this whole topic of climate parenting as well?
2: Yeah, um, definitely my main hopes are very existential, I think, um, in terms of kind of um, can we, as humanity, pull together and, and make the changes that are needed? Um, and I, I see lots of change happening, so that gives me hope. And I think that hope is sometimes also something that we don't um, need to wait to, to appear, but we need to sort of just get involved. So I think through action, through doing things, is how we start to create hope. Um, right. And so that's one of the ways I think about hope, I guess, on a personal level. And in terms of my project, it's um, sort a of smaller personal scale. I guess i definitely hope to be able to roll out the group that i've started um in a a larger way to reach more people um and to sort of Find that sustainable model of funding for me that's going to allow me to, to do that longer term and to spend more time on it. Um, and so, yeah, I was just, I'm sort of open to thinking about different collaborations or different ways to connect with others who are interested in similar top t- topics where we might be able to work together. Um, I think that the pilot that I'm running at the moment is feeling like a really positive experience, um, and there's lots of kind of conversations that are opening up around that um and so yeah that would essentially be my hope to be able to just keep going and do more and make it more my full-time um kind
0: of endeavor yeah yeah I love that I love the idea that um action and action creates hope (laughs) yeah of course it does when you say it like it's like oh right yeah of course we need to just do and then we'll get some hope (laughs) Fantastic. Um, And Tara, for you, what what are your hopes for the future in terms of how things might grow and develop with your project, but also on the bigger scale? On it
1: kind of a a local scale we are now we're a CIC Mm. what we're going to do is going to local businesses and do well-being training for them but then they can donate to free community sessions so we want to move from just doing our walk and talks to community well-being sessions that are still free At the point of access for communities so it's helping businesses understand more about the mental health and emotional health and loneliness Mm. and all the needs of their community so they can choose particular topics that they want to cover or particular populations as well and that we have a model that we would love to be able to roll out because it's such an easy now we've done the kind of legwork as you say it's a really easy model to Mm. roll out to other local areas you just need the right kind of people to be running it. You've got to be able to give and people give and you get from that as well. So it's a really two-way relationship and that's what i want to see it's about again it sounds a little bit cheesy but that people don't always need to just go those old school models or i need to go to a professional to look at my emotional health that we also help people develop their well-being baseline and that they can learn what as you said at the beginning wendy Mm -hmm. what they have in them already to help them cope with adversity um and our project is little stepping that's why it's called conversation starter we're just a stepping stone we signpost people onto other services as well they signpost to us it's about kind of harnessing what people have in them sometimes they just need a little bit of help accessing that and that's what we do
0: yeah fantastic so the I'm kind of my brain is kind of summarizing what I hear here a little bit which is you know I talked about conduits to kindness and contribution and I think in a sense the projects that you've both created are conduits to kindness and contribution but what I also really hear is the importance then of partnership and creating community through partnerships. And essentially, um, what you've both created are kind of blueprints, if you like, um, where through those partnerships, other, you know other benefits can, can be kind of transmitted. you know they're conduits yeah. to other benefits then they're like little you know little roots, little pipelines. Um, yeah, wonderful. I love that so much. I'm going I'm, I'm to be going back through this podcast and kind of right in my nose because I've been so into listening to it. Um, but it, like I said earlier, it sparks so many um, ideas. And I really hope, I, I can see that we had some uh, reaction on social media where people have been really fascinated by this um, conversation as well. Thank you so much. I want to just um, finally uh, ask, people, ask you where people can find you. So Tara, uh, where can we find you?
1: So I'm, I'm kind of everywhere, but the easiest place to find my everywhere is just drtara.co.uk. So you'll find all my social media and my yeah. conversation project starter is on there as well. Um, so And just remind us time. the title
0: again, please.
1: Um, so the project is called the Conversation Starter Project.
0: Fantastic. Rachel, where can we find you?
2: Um, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and my website is www.climateparenting.com um so you can find things about the workshops and other things i'm doing on there um and also the climate um and nature book group that i mentioned is called the blue planet bookshelf um and that's free and that's um, available on a book club's website um, you can just sign up to come along there
0: Okay, fantastic. We'll make sure that all of those links are on the um, show notes for this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing these projects with us today and all of your thoughts and experiences. It's been really generous of you to spend this time. And I I know that this is going to create a lot of conversation and, and a lot of inspiration and hopefully a lot of hope as well. Thanks again. And thank you. And, uh, yeah see you Uh, that's the end of our series one that was our series finale so thank you so much for being here and um looking forward to um sharing with you what will be coming up in series two keep your eye out for that and and um yeah thanks a lot everyone and see you next time i'd love to hear what you think about the inspiring psychologist podcast So please take a moment to leave a review and give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. It makes a massive difference in helping us to reach new audiences. If, like me, you're feeling inspired and moved by the private practice stories in our podcasts, please spread the word across your own networks. And why not encourage your colleagues and friends to listen to the podcast too. To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, please be sure to subscribe to the Inspiring Psychologist podcast. You can find out more about all my guests from Series 1 at our website, inspiringpsych.com. That's inspiringpsych.com.